Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host, James Murphy, a.k.a. Murph. Welcome to episode number 143. And in this one, let me tell you, we do have an abundance of topics to talk about in today's episode. That is not an understatement. I do want to talk Bruins really quickly, just some season exiting thoughts as we look ahead to the offseason and where this team could go, what this team could look like, and obviously talk about Patrice Bergeron, who is probably the focal point and the decision-making for the Boston Bruins in terms of what they do in their 2022 offseason. Obviously, we're going to talk Celtics wrapping up their series against the Milwaukee Bucks in seven games, winning Game 7, and then we're also going to transition into talking about the first two games of their Eastern Conference Finals with the Miami Heat, how games one and two have gone thus far. And hey, the Red Sox aren't in last place anymore. They're currently a game and a half above the Baltimore Orioles for last place in the American League East, but they are 6-4 and four in their last 10 games. They've won a series against the Rangers. They won a series against the Astros. And they're currently playing against the Mariners right now where they won last night. So... Could there be some turnaround happening in Boston at Fenway Park? I mean, 6-4 in your last 10 is definitely a good good tell sign. But then again, there's still a lot of improvements that need to go on. I mean, they are six games under 500. And like I mentioned last time, wait till June 1st. Wait till you're 40, uh, 40 to 60 games in to really make an assessment of the team, which we still have... Uh, roughly a week and a half before we get to June 1st. So there is a little bit of time for the Sox to continue to what seems to be a turnaround in their 2022 season. Hopefully they're turning around in the nick of time because, you know, if they waited any longer, it may have been too, too late. So Bruins, Celtics, and Red Sox are all going to be discussed in today's episode. Hopefully you guys had a fantastic week. I kind of like that little week off that I had in between episode 142 and then obviously today being 143 just because there is a little bit more fluff to talk about in between the episodes so like I mentioned last week this is something you guys wanted was one episode per week and it actually may be beneficial moving forward so we'll continue to see how it goes but you know early thoughts about the one episode per week I'm kind of digging it I ain't gonna lie I am kind of digging it so let's dive into the Bruins and this is an article on NHL.com and it's written by uh, Emily 
Amelie Benjamin. I'm, I'm saying that so wrong. A M A L I E. Why am I? Why can't I pronounce that? Emily. It's not Emily. It's like Amelie. What? Anyways, Amelie Benjamin of the NHL.com. She's an insider, and she headlines this article: Bergeron decision on retirement to set course for Bruins offseason plans. Center choosing whether or not to continue playing could affect numerous areas. Future of coach uncertain. Here we go. For the Bruins, everything flows from one question. Will Patrice Bergeron return or retire? That decision solely is in the hands of Bergeron, the Bruins captain and number one center. He said Wednesday that he will be taking time to evaluate his future with his family figure out whether he might have the desire to come back for his 19th NHL season, all of them in Boston. His choice will determine the next course of action for the Bruins. One thing is settled, it seems. General Manager Don Sweeney will return for his eighth season. Bruins President Cam Neely said he intends to finalize a contract with Sweeney in the near future. But the status of coach Bruce Cassidy, who finished his sixth season, appears less certain. Neely said he has yet to talk through Cassie's status with Sweeney, who will have the ultimate call on the coach's job. Since Cassie replaced Claude Julien on February 7, 2017, the Bruins have a .672 points percentage, 245 to 10846, second only to Tampa Bay with .698. I quote, I think we have to look at making some changes as far as how we play and the way we do some of the things, Neely said Thursday. Quote, I think Bruce is a fantastic coach. He brought a lot of success to this organization. I like him as a coach. We'll see where it goes, but I think we need to make some changes. End quote. The question is how deep those will... Well, hold on. The question is how deep those will changes go. Okay, there's a little typo right there in her article. It literally says... The question is how deep those will changes go. I think she meant the question is how deep will those changes go. Wow. I've seen some some writing errors on uh, some articles and reports, but nothing like that was a tongue twister. It made me feel stupid for a second. Carrying on. The Bruins were not happy with their finish this season. They believed they could defeat the Carolina Hurricanes and move on to the Eastern Conference second round and beyond. Forward Brad Marchand said the Bruins thought they had that they had they eliminated the Hurricanes. They could have reached at least the Eastern Conference Finals. But the Bruins lost Game 7 at Carolina, a third straight season when they did not make it past the second round after losing Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals to the St. Louis Blues in 2019. Speaking about Bruins ownership, Neely said, quote, They're disappointed and rightfully so, end quote. So if Bergeron doesn't return, would the Bruins consider a rebuild? Quote, I've been looking at that for a while now, Neely said. Quote, as your core players and your better players are starting to age out, you do have to look at that. There's no question. But we do have some good young players in this lineup and hopefully continue to grow and hopefully we can add to that. But it is something you think about. Would the fans accept that? Quote, I don't think anybody really wants to watch losing hockey and that's not the plan is to start losing Neely said, quote, you look at the teams across the league that have lost a lot of hockey games over the numbers of years and they're in rebuilds and they get better draft picks and ultimately better players. She needs to end her quotes. My goodness, that's the second time. 
Because, yeah, once I, I kind of skipped over it was a few sex, uh, sentences ago. Thank goodness. Uh, the editor, the publisher, whoever needs to really like dive in. Here, here's it again. Quote, I think we've done a pretty good job the last 10 to 11 years of trying to stay in that window to win. Period. No end quote. Focus on the end quotes. My goodness. As Neely said, the Bruins have some building blocks in place. They got a good rookie season out of Jeremy Swayman and seem to seem to believe in him as their goalie of the post-Tuka Rask era. Swayman and Linus Olmark have been the position locked down. Their corpse of defenseman is solid too. They have what could have been one of the best top defensive pairs in the NHL in Charlie McAvoy and Hampus Lindholm. One that should get better with a full season together. Each is signed through 2029-2030. Holy crap. That is a long time. Their offense? That's where the issue comes in. The Bruins still are laminating the missed opportunity from the 2015 NHL draft when they had the numbers 13, 14th, and 15th picks and selected de defenseman uh, Jacob Zaboral and forwards Jake DeBrusque and Zach Sanishin. The players picked at number 16, 17, and 18 were forwards Matthew Barzel of the Islanders, Kyle Connor of the Winnipeg Jets, and defenseman Thomas Chabot of the Ottawa Senators. Also, forward Pasternak is heading into the final season of his contract. Neely has been frustrated by the Bruins' inability to be more creative on the power play, and everyone in the organization acknowledges that 5-on-5 five -five offense has not been good enough. And that's their center problem. They do not have a replacement of, for Bergeron in the organization. Their best center options on the roster are Charlie Coyle, Eric Halla, and prospect Jack Stanika. And there have been draft picks sacrificed to maintain this team's status. The Bruins don't have a first-round pick in 2022 NHL draft and don't have a second-round pick in the 2023 NHL draft or the 2024 NHL draft. It is a major concern. Quote, you could look at plans B and C and such, but let's be honest, you don't replace that type of player and what he means to our organization, Sweeney said of Bergeron. That might take years to replace that player in that sense, end quote. The Bruins have gone through years of such departures, among them defensemen Zdeno Chara and Tori Krug, forward David Krejci, and goalie Tuka Rask. Bergeron is next, whether it's this offseason or beyond. The organization waits with batted breath. Quote, I think it would be challenging to have the year that we had without Bergeron, Neely said. Quote, it's tough to find a Bergeron. Hopefully he does come back, but if he doesn't, we've got to go to work. Now that article, I'm not going to lie, was a struggle to read. I, there was a, I tried to just breeze through some of the errors, whether they were quoting errors or just punctuation errors. Um, that was, I'm sorry, but that, that was, the information was good. And the structure, I think, was fine. But wow, that, that needs to be revised. Holy crap. Anyways, uh, a lot of things are right there in that article that, depending on what Patrice Bergeron does, is going to dictate this Bruins future. If uh, Bergeron comes back for his 19th NHL season, then the Bruins will absolutely continue to rebuild this win-now team with Marchand, with Pasternak, with Coyle, with McAvoy, with Lindholm, and everyone else that they were able to accumulate this past season and kind of build on that to be better for the 2022-2023 season.
Now, if Patrice Bergeron decides to retire, then bears the question, well, what do we do? We have Pasternak, who's on the last year of his contract. Do we keep him? Do we trade him? What do we do? Marchand, you know, what are we going to do with the guy that's 34, 35 years old? Should we keep him and just let him, you know, play out his time here with the Bruins? Should we try to trade him to get as many assets as we possibly can? It's just there is a lot of questions that, you know, will come depending on what Patrice Bergeron does. Now, obviously, there is no pressure on Patrice, Berge- on Patrice Bergeron, excuse me. But he let him make his own decision. Obviously, we all want him back. We all want to watch Patrice play one more season, at least. We all want to see our captain play another season. But even if he does play, let's just hypothetically say that he does play his 19th season next year. The team still has a lot of problems. Now, where I do disagree with this article is, let me find it, let me find it. She talks about the defense. Their corpse of defensemen is solid, too. Um, did you watch the Bruins play against the Carolina Hurricanes? It really wasn't. We saw how thin that depth was when we didn't have McAvoy and Lindholm for a game. We saw what the depth looked like when one of them was not in the lineup for a game. It's thin. Yeah, the the top two defensemen that we do have in McAvoy and Lindholm, yeah, that's a great one-two punch. Here's top defensive pairing. But after that, I mean, yeah, it may be quote-unquote solid, but I don't think it's good long-term. Like, Grizzlick, I think, took a step back. Carlo seemed like he took a step back. Connor Clifton, I mean, he's... Connor Clifton. I mean, it's really hard to argue that he's a top four defenseman. But overall, I mean, the defensive corpse was not that good. And it really showed in this series. And I would love to have a lot of faith in what this team could have done if they were able to get past the Carolina Hurricanes. And Brad Marchand saying that they could have went beyond the second round and seen themselves in at least the conference final. I mean, you just don't know that. You really don't know that. And were the Hurricanes that much better than you? At the end of the day, I don't think so. But I do believe you just got outplayed. And it just came down to being able to win one on the road. And that's all you had to do. But you weren't able to do it. And that is a trickle-down effect of the defensive play, the offensive play, and obviously the coaching at the same time. Because you got to put the puck in the net. However, you got to keep the puck out of the net. And I don't think it was Swayman's fault at all in any of the losses he endured in the series. Obviously, you could look at games one and two and and point to Linus Olmark, sure. But again, it has to go through all five other guys in order to get into the net to begin with. So I think this series was a team series loss. But again, if they were able to beat the Carolina Hurricanes, I don't know how much further they would have been able to to go. I really don't. I mean, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but we'll never get to see what that looks like except all we can see right now is a loss in looking ahead to next season uh she does bring up in the article she does bring up the 2015 nhl draft when the bruins had picks 13 14 and 15 and i was screaming for the bruins to trade them now like i think taking those three having three picks right there was pretty good chances of you hitting on one of them are probably pretty high but you haven't. 
And yes, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. But if you trade those three picks to get into like the top five or so, six, seven, I don't know, I'd probably get into the top five, to be honest. You would in a much better position, a much, much better position. Or if you even trade one of them to get a first-round pick in the following year. Again, I mean, I'm not sure why we're taking three first-round picks. Yes, it's nice to have depth at the Providence level. Yes, it's going to be nice to have a good young core where you believe that Zaboral, Dabrowski, and Sanishin will be your foundational players moving forward. Yeah, that's all nice and all. But again, it's it hasn't panned out. And we're not going to be in a position again where we're going to have three first-round picks all in a row like that. So this team moving forward doesn't have a first-round pick this draft. They don't have a second-round pick next or in 2024's draft. So where are the Bruins going to have to rebuild for next season? And that's going to have to be through what they have in their system at Providence. That's going to have to be through free agency, trades. The Bruins will have a lot of work to do one way or the other, regardless if Bergeron comes back. And I just hope that the Bruins organization doesn't use Bergeron's retirement as the narrative of the moves that may come if he retires. Like, let's say Jack Stadnika being the team's number two center, right? Well, if Bergeron was here, he would be the number three center where he probably should be. Like, I just hope they don't try to pin it all on Bergeron if he retires to make him not seem like the bad guy, but to make his retirement appear to be the reason why the team is in the spot that it is. And I don't think that they will. I don't think they'll throw Bergeron under the bus like that. But again... You lost Chara, you lost Krug, you lost Krejci, and you lost Rask. All in the past couple of seasons. We could have absolutely used David Krejci this year. You know, Tory Krug, people liked and hated him. People thought Chara was washed up. People still wanted him. You know, same with Tuka Rask. But people keep looking at David Krejci and be like, oh, if David Krejci was still on this team, he would be the team's number two center. You know, when Bergeron missed a few games, he could have slid in there. The team's power play would have been a lot better with Krejci. You know, the the centers would have been able to, you know, fall into place a lot better. Like, okay, fair enough. But the dude, you know, gave you 10 years of his life and he wanted to go play overseas in his home country. What's wrong with that? And yes, it it sucks that you don't have David Krejci anymore. And some people admittedly uh, wanted Krejci traded. I mean, myself included at one point, just because it would clear up some cap to make other maneuvers during the courses of other seasons. But again, a lot of people were looking at David Krejci and be like, oh man, if that guy was here, you know, our centers could fall into place. I just don't want to see that again if Bergeron does retire. Now, if you're going to ask me, if you're going to ask me if I think Patrice Bergeron will stay or retire, I think, I think he may give it one more go. I think he may give it one more go and that's it. If he does come back, I think he will come back for one more year. And that's it. And after that one year, he's done regardless of what the finish was. Now, let's say the Bruins won the Stanley Cup this year. I think he would retire. But I think he wants it one more time, one more shot at it. And I think he's going to do that. But he's going to make it clear, like you guys, like talking to the Bruins, you got to bring in a lot of talent here. You got to do something. You know, bring in three legitimate number one centers or something. You know, bring in... Four legitimate, you know, first line wingmen or something. We got to get this team nice and deep, you know, to kind of buy in all into one more season. That's my opinion. Will it happen? Who knows? Patrice Bergeron, 
whose contract is up with the conclusion of the season will have a decision to make whether to return for a 19th season or retire and ride off into the sunset. But with that being said, that was our Bruins Minute. Let's talk about the Boston Celtics here. Now, obviously, we all know, unless we've been living under a rock, that the Bruins won Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Semifinals against the Milwaukee Bucks 109-81. That was on Sunday. But let's just, you know, we could talk about that game and how important that game was. But I do want to talk more about the Miami Heat series, obviously, because that is the current series in play right now. Celtics lost Game 1 to 118-107. The Celtics won three quarters in that game. They won the first, the second, and the fourth quarters. All by a combined 3, 8, 14 points. You lost the third quarter by 25 points. You lost the third quarter because you allowed the Heat to open up a 22-2 run in the third quarter and finish the quarter on a you know scoring outscoring you 39 to 14. That's that is beyond insane, <laughs> if I'm being honest. That is absolutely beyond insane. Now, I do think that not having, I think I think everyone can agree with this, not having Smart and or Horford was a major reason why that kind of a game got out of hand or that game ended up in a loss to begin with because it was one less defender for Jimmy Butler. Al Horford could have really held down the fort inside to not allow the Heat to not allow Jimmy Butler to get nine rebounds. Not allow P.J. Tucker to get six. I mean, Bam Adebayo wasn't that much of a factor. But you're giving up eight rebounds to Tyler Hero. That's kind of the big outlier to me. And I think that's where kind of Al Horford would really slide in to not allow Butler, Tucker, and Tyler Hero to get 23 rebounds together. So the Celtics losing game one, big, big, I would like to think, wake-up call. And I really thought that the Celtics, I'm not going to say cruise to a Game 1 victory, but we're going to win Game 1 even without Smart and Horford because they just came off of their series against the Bucks. Uh, you know, they're playing another game a couple days later. The Heat have been off for five days, I believe, at that point. So there could have been just a tad bit of rust like there was with the Celtics when they swept the Brooklyn Nets in their first round compared to the Bucks going six, seven games in their respective series. So I just kind of thought that it would have rolled over a little bit for the Celtics. And they started out fine. Again, they first quarter, 35 to 24. Second quarter, 35 to 21. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at game two. Oops. <laughs> Oops, I'm looking at game two. Um, uh, first quarter, 28 to 25. Second quarter, 35 to 29. And then that wretched third quarter. You know, Tatum played 44 minutes that game and gave you 29 points. I think he could have gave you, four, you 39, 45 points, and that still wouldn't have been enough. I just don't think the Celtics just had it in them that night to not allow Jimmy Butler to drop 41 points. Come on, 41 points? That just can't happen. And I think that's the biggest separation between the Celtics and the Heat. In, in the series, not just in game one, but in the series in general, is the fact that Tatum, yeah, he can give you 46 points in a game six facing elimination. Yeah, you can have Jalen Brown go out and drop 25, 30, maybe 35 points if you need him to. 
But then you got Grant Williams who can give you 10 to 25 points. You have Peyton Pritchard who can give you anywhere between 10 to 25 points himself. Al Horvath who dropped 30 one night. You just have a lot of players that can go out and be the scorer that you need for a possession or two or maybe even a quarter or maybe if Tatum is kind of cold right now. But the thing for the Heat is that they don't have that outside of Jimmy Butler. Yeah, here in Game 1, you got 18 from Tyler Hero. Max Struess gave you 11. Gabe Vincent gave you 17. Bam Adebayo in Game 1 gives them 10. Their second best scorer was Tyler Hero. Their third best scorer was Gabe Vincent. But Jimmy Butler getting 41 points is the biggest difference. If you hold Jimmy Butler, and granted, 18 of them or 17 of them came from free throws, you take away you know half of those free throws and you probably still end up winning that game. But if you don't allow Jimmy Butler to get 41 points, say you just give up 30, right? That should still be enough in order to win the game, especially with the depth that you have in Tatum, Brown, Smart, Horford, um, obviously Pritchard. So the Heat just lack depth where you strive in depth. And I think that was a big reason or a big factor in why you were able to beat the Bucks is because all the Bucks had was Giannis. That's it. Let Giannis score his 30, 35, 40, 45 points. Let him do whatever he wants. But don't let Grayson Allen beat you. Don't let Brooks Lopez beat you. Don't let Drew Holiday beat you. Okay? In this series, in this series against the Heat, let Jimmy Butler get all the points he wants. Don't foul him. Don't put him at the free throw line because he likes the contact. He's going to look for contact. Giannis isn't a three-point shooter, but if you leave him dead-ass open, he's going to shoot it. And he may make a few shots, but you'll live with that because you'd rather him just you know shoot an open three rather than just spin, travel, drive into the lane, get fouled, and now he's on the free throw line. You'd rather let him live and die outside of the three. Okay, Jimmy Butler, in an essence is similar to Giannis because don't let Jimmy Butler do what he wants inside. He wants to do what he wants inside. He's not going to shoot outside. So if you can give him 25, 30 points inside without going to the free throw line all too much, making that point total go up to 35, 40, 45 or whatever, then I have faith that you're only going to give up six points to Adebayo Six points to Max Struess in a game two. Caleb Martin, six points. I mean, uh, let's see. Old Depot, 14. Vincent, 14. Tyler Hero, 11. Granted, this is mostly garbage time at this point. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. But still, your depth is way better. You're getting 10 from Al Horford in his first game back. You're getting 27 from Tatum. You're getting 24 from Smart. 24 from Jalen Brown. 19 from Grant Williams, 10 from Pritchard. You're getting a little bit of little bit from everybody. Whereas it's Jimmy Butler scoring 29 points this is in game 2 now. 
14 from Gabe Vincent, but is that sustainable? No. 14 from Oladipo, who's playing in garbage time, even though he probably shouldn't have been, but he was out there in garbage time, so let's call it 10 points. Tyler Hero, there's the sixth man of the year, 11 points. That's probably normal. But that's it. But that is it. P.J. Tucker, starting forward, 5 points. Bam, starting center, 6 points. Max Struess, starting guard, 6 points. That's more like them than what you saw in Game 1. And I strongly believe that not having Marcus Smart and Al Horford in Game 1 is a huge factor because now you can rotate Time Lord, Tice, Horford, Grant Williams on Bam Adebayo if you want. And for Jimmy Butler, you can rotate Tatum, Smart, Brown. I can't see why Grant Williams can't guard him. Um, Did I miss anybody? No, I didn't miss anybody. And you can rotate those guys onto Jimmy Butler, but if you take out Al Horford and you take out Marcus Smart, arguably your two best defenders, maybe two of your... Marcus Smart is clearly your best defender. But is it any stretch of the imagination to say that Al Horford is one of your best defensive players? I mean, Tatum can lock it down, yes. Rob Williams obviously is locked down. Jalen Brown's been a little streaky this playoffs defensively. Grant Williams has obviously taken a massive step up on the defensive end. Look what he did against Giannis. I mean, I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say Al Horford is a top three defensive player on your team. I just, Especially when he was guarding Giannis last series. So when you're able to plug in two top-tier defensive players, or at least, well, one being Marcus Smart and then Al Horford being the other as of late, that just completely changes things for you. And it showed in Game 2 where you're able to win Game 2 by 25 points. Now, obviously, you know, the lead was up to like 30 at one point. Again, garbage time. Everyone's just hucking up shots, making, you know, everything look nice and such. I do believe... Overall, the Celtics are the better team. And I think across the nation, people are going to say that the Celtics are the better team. When you look at Tatum, Brown, Smart, Time Lord, Al Horford, Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, those are seven guys right there that the Celtics can lean on to either get you a three-pointer, play a little bit of defense, maybe not Pritchard, but Overall, that is their and Oh, and I'm not even including Derek White, who's a great defensive player himself. Obviously, he filled in for Marcus Smart in Game 1, but he missed Game 2 due to the birth of his first child. So, I mean, there's an eighth player right there. Obviously, you don't want to rely on him scoring-wise, but that gives you eight great rotational players right there that can do a lot of different things and do it very well. The Heat, outside of Jimmy Butler, who do they have? Yes, they have Bam Adebayo, but through two games has been nothing. Now, is that Rob Williams just locking him down? Is that Grant Williams locking him down? Or is Bam Adebayo taking a turn where he's not as good as maybe we once thought or nowhere near as good as he was a couple years ago in the bubble for the Eastern Conference Finals between the Heat and the Celtics then? Victor Oladipo, obviously a shell of himself, can still hit the juice a little bit. Tyler Hero, sixth man. I feel like you have the players to lock him down, right? Like I said, you have Tatum, Brown, Smart. You have Derek White. You have players to lock down Tyler Hero. You do. I'm not scared of Caleb Martin. I'm not scared of Victor Oladipo. I'm not scared of Max Struess or P.J. Tucker. I'm not. Duncan Robinson came in garbage time because they were down by 20-something points trying to see if he can hit threes. 
and he bricked the first th- uh, three threes that he shot. So t- uh, Duncan Robinson, who was the starting small forward for the Heat a couple seasons ago, has almost or essentially lost his way out of the rotation now for the Heat. And he was a major problem for the Celtics two years ago, but isn't a factor at all this year. So things have completely changed in terms of the Heat from a couple of years ago, and then obviously for the Celtics uh, since a couple of years ago. I just think you go down the roster, and we did this with the Bucks roster too. The Celtics roster is by far better and deeper than the Heat. I think the top sheer talent for the Celtics compared to the Heat is better. Am I taking Jason Tatum or am I taking Jimmy Butler? Probably going to take Jason Tatum, okay? Am I going to take, um, I know it's not positional, but am I going to take Jalen Brown or Bam Adebayo? I'd probably say most people may take Bam Adebayo here, but looking through the course of the playoffs so far, or at least in the start, the first two games, you're taking Jalen Brown. All right, what about P.J. Tucker and Al Horford? Probably Al Horford, if I'm being honest. Um, what about Max Struess or Marcus Smart? You're taking Smart. Okay, what about Grant Williams or, I don't know, Tyler Hero? I mean, that's Grant Williams. Look at what he did against Giannis. I mean, how is it, how is it that you can't take Grant Williams with the way he's played throughout the playoffs and not say you want a guy like that on your team? It's just, I think we're in for a, an interesting series between the Celtics and the Heat. And it's going to come down to who can win the small battles. Who can win the battles for the loose ball? Who can win the battles for the offensive rebound? Who can win the battles when the other team is going on a run and you got to get a stop or you got to get a bucket yourself? The game between the game. And I would like to believe that our coaching can kind of help with the intricacies and the nuances of the game in between the game. Not saying that Ime Doke is a better coach than Eric Spolstra because generally speaking, I mean, I would like to think that Spolstra is a better coach. But when you have the talent that you have on the Celtics and the coach that you do have in Udoka, that should be able to outmatch Spolstra and what he has at his disposal with the Heat. I really do. A lot of people pegged this series to maybe go six games or so between the Celtics and the Heat. I know a lot of people were picking the Celtics to come out of the East, and I still think that if the Celtics play the way that they played here in Game 2, shutting down the Heat like they did in Game 2, this series could be done in 5. I'm sorry, 6. No, yeah, (laughs) 5. 5. This series could be done in 5. I mean, could we see the Heat, you know, sneak another win? Yeah. But with the series now going back to Boston, the Celtics stealing home court away from the Heat by winning one of those two games in Miami... I just, I don't know, and I don't see the Heat being able to grab one in Boston. I just don't. Because bench players, role players, rotational guys, they play better at home. And you look at how well uh, Grant Williams has played on the road this whole postseason. You look at how well Peyton Pritchett has been able to play this whole postseason on the road. Those two guys, I think, are really going to take a big step forward or I should say a big elevation in their games come three and four, especially the Eastern Conference Finals. Series tied 1-1. Uh, 
you know, you have a chance to go up for the first time in a series since you were up one nothing against the Brooklyn Nets. Or I should say, I guess, when you were up 3 nothing against the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, they were down one nothing to the Bucks. Then they were down, they tied it 1-1, down 2-1, tied it 2-2, down 3-2, tied it 3-3, and then 1. I don't consider the series win as leading the series, right? They were down one nothing against the Heat, and now they tied it 1-1. So the Celtics haven't had a series lead since they won Game 3 against the Brooklyn Nets. What was it, three weeks ago at this point? So I am very excited to see, and I think they probably know something like that. And if they play just like they played in Game 2, in Game 3, with that Boston crowd behind them, eating them by 20 to 30 points, that is really going to demoralize Miami Heat, knowing they have to come back for a Game 4 and do it again and try not to let it happen again. And honestly, if that series goes back to Miami and the Celtics are up 3-1, to one, that Game 5 may just be a formality, honestly, especially if Jimmy Butler is not getting any help because from Games 1 and Game 2, he is getting zero help. Zero, zero help. And until he gets help from Bam Adebayo, Oladipo, Tyler Hero, whoever you want to look at, I have full faith and full confidence that Tatum can give you 25, Brown can give you 25, Smart will give you 20, Horford can give you 15, Pritchard can give you 15, Williams can give you 15, and we'll just destroy them that way. And I don't think anything that I'm saying is any stretch of the imagination. Now, could I see a reality where the Celtics lose game three? It's the playoffs. Of course, anything can happen. Now, if they won like they won in game two, in game one, right? And they lost game two like they lost in game one, then I could see game three being a little bit more of an even battle. But since they have so much momentum going back home to Boston after a 25-point win against the Miami Heat in Game 2, it's going to be very tough for the Miami Heat to overcome the Celtics' depth, the Celtics' uh, skilled players, Tatum, Brown, Smart, Horford, uh, Pritchard, Williams, all those guys. Plus, now they have to deal with a hostile environment being the Boston Celtics fan base the TD Garden crowd, and it's a tough place to play. I mean, Giannis had to go through it. Durant and Kyrie had to go through it, right? So it's going to be very difficult for them, especially when they do not have momentum at this moment. If they won, if the Heat won Game 2, they would have a little bit of momentum going into Game 3. But then again, come tomorrow for Game 3, it could be a completely different story, and they could come out here and just punch us right in the teeth and the Celtics not be able to rebound from it. But series tied 1-1, game three tomorrow, tip off at 8.30 p.m., probably like 8.45 after all the pregame introductories. I'm very excited for it. Game three is going to be absolutely massive for the Boston Celtics. If you can win game three, you'll have so much momentum going into game four where you still have home court advantage to be able to take advantage of I really like the Celtics at this point right now. Again, I said at the beginning, if you beat Milwaukee, which obviously that's when the last time we recorded before Game 7, but if you get to Miami, well now here we are, win one of those two games in Miami to split that first two games to steal home court because now the next three games in this series possible, right? There's five games possibly remaining. The next three of them are here in Boston. 
But the most important ones, five and seven, are obviously in Miami. So take care of business at home. Don't split the series at home like you did with Milwaukee. Go out, keep the momentum, make it bigger, use the crowd, really just make the heat feel not welcomed. Put the pressure on the heat and expose everybody but Jimmy Butler on that heat roster because clearly that heat's roster is nowhere near comparable to what the Celtics currently have on their roster. And I could see the Celtics winning in five, absolutely. You know, they could have easily swept them, to be honest, if they just didn't blow that third quarter in game one. They could have swept them. But that's neither here nor there. But yes, game three will be tomorrow, Saturday, May 21st at 8.30 p.m., tip-off probably around 8.45. Big game three for both the Heat and the Celtics for different reasons. Now, let's talk about the Boston Red Sox, who have subtly, subtly turned it around. And I'm not ready to buy into the team just yet, obviously. You know, I have to wait and watch and take more of it in. But I do like what the Red Sox have done the past few games. Again, they're 6-4 and four in their last 10 games, so that's some promise. Let's see, dating back to the 13th, they have won their series against the Rangers, uh, winning 2 of 3. They've won their series against the Astros, winning 2 of 3. And yesterday beat the Mariners 12-6. Uh, to six. And Grant's a four-game series, so there's still a lot more games left against the Mariners. But I do like where the Red Sox are turning. Again, it's still early here in this little potential momentum shift. But you got to start somewhere with this team. This team has to start somewhere. Uh, they beat the Rangers 7-1 to on May 13th. They beat the Rangers 11-3. to Then they lost 7-1. to Okay, 7 runs, 11 runs, 1 run. Okay, 66% of the time the offense showed up. 66% of the time the pitching showed up. Game one against the Astros, May 16th, they won 6-3. to Then on Tuesday, they lost 13-4. to And then they beat the Astros on Wednesday, 5-1. to Again, 66% of the time, the offense showed up. 66% of the time, the pitching showed up. Those percentages and those odds, I will absolutely take if we can keep that and maintain that moving forward. Okay, 12-6 to yesterday against the Mariners. Red Sox offense showed up, but the pitching not so much. But again, you gave up four runs in the second inning. And besides a couple of runs in the eighth and the ninth, you were able to close the door on the Mariners throughout the rest of the evening. And I think that's absolutely massive. And I think that actually bodes well for this team moving forward. I really do. I mean, Trevor Story last night had three home runs. What a night for him. Seven RBIs, three home runs. We went four for four with five runs. Uh, seven runs batted in. Dude was killing it last night. By far the MVP of the game last night. But let's look at it from a whole team perspective in that you can't bet on Trevor Story to play like that. I mean, he's now turning a page himself. He's starting to turn a page himself, which is nice. But moving forward, we're going to need the whole team. I mean, Bogarts, Devers, been playing well as of late. Verdugo went 3-5 for five last night, which is nice. But again, the bottom of the lineup, Dahlbeck, yeah, went one for four. Vasquez, one for four, cool. Jackie Bradley Jr., one for three with the walk, okay. We need seven, eight, nine in order to have long-term success throughout the lineup. It's just a fact. 
maybe bring Dahlbeck down for a month in Worcester just to kind of figure and tweak a couple of things out. Vasquez is your starting catcher. He is what he is. Maybe have Connor Wong come up and be the offensive catcher, right? And Jackie Bradley Jr., I'm on the boat that he is. He should be the fourth outfielder. I would be okay if he was the fourth outfielder. He starts twice a week, comes in for you know outfield replacement maybe, if you have J.D. Martinez in left field or whatever. Not saying Jared Durant's going to solve all problems, but what you're getting from Jackie Bradley Jr., his ceiling right now offensively, is Jaron Duran's floor. I'm sorry, that's just the case. And a lot of people aren't going to like that, but it's the truth. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that Jaron Duran, Connor Wong, Tristan Cassis are going to solve the Red Sox 7, 8, 9 issues. But maybe making a couple tweaks here and a couple tweaks there could help that bottom third of the lineup not be three outs but actually convert into a couple hits to give Kike, to give Devers at the top of the lineup, some guys on base to maybe even drive in or to advance runners and just kind of make that lineup, which is one through six, one through nine. I mean, right now, Trevor Story, who batted six last night, has no protection behind him. You know, if he gets on base, say he drives in a run or two and this, uh, the Red Sox are down six to four, right? Okay, who's going to drive in Trevor Story? Is it Dahlbeck? Is it Vasquez? Is it, is it Bradley? Chances are it's going to be neither of them. And that's kind of my gripe right now with the lineup. It's good to see that they're turning it around and that they're able to score more than four runs, right? In, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six games. Six in the last seven games, they're able to score at least four runs. Okay? It's very nice to see. But again, is this sustainable? We talked about this for the majority of the season in the Red Sox lineup struggling uh, to be able to score runs where they've scored one run against the Orioles. They've been able to score no runs against the Angels, two runs against the White Sox, one run, two runs against the White Sox. It's just one run against the Rangers now that I just see it. It's going to be a question that is going to be persistent. The lineup needs to put the bat on the ball and... When you do get that, that is a plus. That is a reward. But baseball, at the end of the day, is about pitching, it's about defense, and it's about getting outs. Who can get 27 outs first by obviously leading? But I would like to believe that the Red Sox lineup has the depth and has the players in order to be able to score four runs on a nightly basis. And that's where the pitching is going to have to step up. And I think as of late, for the most part, the pitching has stepped up. Obviously, there's still some problems and there's still some holes to fill. But after Rich Hill got pulled last night after two innings, Tanner Houck, four innings, no runs. John Schreiber, one inning, no runs. Uh, Salamora, a third, a run. Matt Strom, two-thirds, nothing. Brazier, one run. So the bullpen, is the bullpen taking a turn? Is the rotation taking a turn? There's still a lot of questions that revolve around the Red Sox pitching lineup. Uh, the pitching lineup, Jesus. The pitching staff, and deservingly so. We've had tons of questions about that bullpen, about not having a closer, the rotation just garbage. But they've pitched decently, right? They've pitched decently, and I mean, I feel like they've hit rock bottom, and there's only room for them to go up from here. But you can only have that positive mindset and that positive outlook if you're getting at least four runs from your lineup every single night. And beforehand, you weren't. But now the past week or so, you have been. 
week plus. You have been. But how consistent and how sustainable is it? Trevor Story has now turned it on. You're still getting nothing from 7, 8, and 9. That's four hitters you weren't getting anything from. I mean, Kike Hernandez was struggling for the majority of the year and still relatively is. So that's five hitters now. It's just, in order to stay positive, in order to stay optimistic about the pitching, you need to be getting consistent results from your lineup 1 through 9. And when you're now just getting positive results 1 through 6, you're still looking at three guaranteed outs at the bottom of your lineup, which is going to affect the outlook of the overall team, the optimism or the negative pessimism of the overall team one way or the other. I like where the Red Sox are going right now. I really do. I think they have a lot of potential to actually go on a good run here as the weather heats up against the Mariners, the White Sox, the Orioles, and uh, the A's early June. There's a lot of good stuff to look ahead to for this Red Sox team. But I'm not going to get overly excited just yet. You know, I still want to see what this team's going to look like by the end of May, come June 1st. And when we get to that point, hey, then we can fully evaluate this team moving forward because by then they'll have maybe the lineup figured out. Maybe they'll have the rotation or the bullpen figured out. Maybe they'll go 9-1 and one in their last 10 games and turn a 12-game back deficit in the division to maybe, I don't know, six games back and just be more, you know, respectable. I don't know. But there's a lot of things to be excited for for the Red Sox. But again, I do recommend caution with your excitement. Don't get overzealous just yet. It could just be a small blip in an overall bad season. Or the first six, seven weeks that we've seen so far in the season thus far could be the one outlier the one bad moment that we have in this whole season, in the entire season, could be changed around, turned around for the better. Who knows? We will have to wait and see. But overall, for the Red Sox, uh, their upcoming schedule is not incredibly hard. And again, they got the Mariners, they got the White Sox, the Orioles, the Reds, uh, series against the A's. So there's tons of games to be played for this team to definitely turn around in the standings. But again, we're just going to have to wait and see. And with that being said, that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. I really appreciate you downloading, listening, and enjoying Murph's Boston Sports Talk. As always, I greatly appreciate the love and the support. If you are listening to this podcast on audio-only platforms, again, thank you so much for downloading, listening, and enjoying. You can reach out to me via social media at Murph's Car Town, and you can chat with me over there with anything that you want to talk about from today's episode, whether it's Bergeron, the Bruins, the Celtics against the Heat, the Sox, whatever it may be, reach out to me via social media at Murph's Car Town, and we can carry over today's discussion over there. And if you listen to this episode on YouTube, I would greatly appreciate you like rating this video if you enjoyed it. Leave all questions, thoughts, comments, concerns down below in the comment section of this video. And also, if you're new to the channel or haven't considered subscribing, please consider hitting that giant red subscribe button as I would greatly appreciate the love and the support with you subscribing. But again, that is going to do it. Before I go, before I go, if you have not noticed yet, Saturday is supposed to be 91 degrees out. Sunday is supposed to be 90 two degrees out and then next week is going to come back down to like the 60s and 70s it is going to be a heat wave 
So stay cool. Come on down to the card shop if you're local. The AC will hopefully be on. I've had a little bit of issues with that, but we'll get that fixed, I promise. And also, if you went to trade night and you listen to this, reach out to me. Let me know. You know, Shout out to everyone that went to trade night for the month of May here at Merce Cardtown Sports Shop. I greatly appreciate you guys showing out. And if you don't know what trade night is, I definitely have my uh, tons of vlogs and some pickup videos about trade night. It's essentially a night where sports card collectors, hobbyists, whoever, will come on down to the shop and they'll buy, sell, and trade with each other. It's an absolute fun night, and it's a night that people in the hobby definitely enjoy. So if you're local and you haven't made it to a trade night, I don't know when June's trade night is, but definitely try to make it out for June's trade night. You'll definitely have a good time. But again, that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for downloading, listening, and enjoying. And a fire truck is going by. Oh my goodness. I'm trying to do an outro. And we gotta we gotta be doing this. Anyways, that is going to wrap it up for episode number 143. I'll catch you guys in the next one. But between now and then, you guys know that I love you and I will always, always see you. big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big